if you're an investor and you've been investing for a while, anybody who has, we've been through lots of ups and downs. Several of them have felt way scarier than this one. I think what we're going through now is more of an adjustment as we get back to a sort of more normal environment, which will take a while, and we pull back from some prices on some assets that were too high. This is Money Conscious from Millstone Evans Group. I'm your host, Sasha Millstone. Join me as we discuss investing, financial planning, and life. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com, and thanks for joining us. Today's podcast theme, How Best Can You Navigate Market Volatility, couldn't be timelier. My name is Dave Singleton. I work with the Millstone Evans Group team on the Money Conscious podcast, and I'm also a longtime client. If you're like me, you've seen all the stock market news headlines. You know the ones. They make you feel like you're doom scrolling through financial news. We've been here before. If you've been invested for a while, you know about volatile markets, but somehow each time the news is still unsettling. It's time to turn to two people who can give great perspective on this situation. I'm excited to have both the Millstone and the Evans of the Millstone Evans Group. They are the co-founders. With clients in 37 states, Sasha Millstone, Greg Evans, and the team specialize in retirement planning and distribution strategies, estate planning, longevity planning, ESG, or socially conscious investing, charitable giving, and a number of other financial planning and investment topics. Their history with the markets, combined with a comprehensive focus on research, make them ideal people to speak with during these times of market volatility. They connect with clients in a clear, personal way that's very different from the jargon-filled, impersonal nature of many other financial advisor firms. And that is the kind of connection I know listeners will experience with this podcast. I'm going to ask the pressing questions that I know concerned investors like me have right now, given how much is going on in the world and in the financial markets. Sasha and Greg, before we dive into market-related questions, could you share a little about how you two met and went on to establish the Millstone Evans Group? Well, there's only one story because (laughs) (laughs) I was Greg's sales assistant when I was in graduate school. And so Greg actually taught me a lot about markets in that position. So we've known each other for longer than I'm going to (laughs) share. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention the decades of experience because it can make it sound like not such a great thing, though it is. But yeah, do you want to add anything? No, we, uh, yeah, I first started with Smith Barney in 1981. And Sasha, you came on board in 85. Something around that. 84, 85. 
I ended up moving to Colorado as Smith Barney for a year, and then I moved to A.G. Edwards up in Boulder. The commute was a bit much, and Sasha and I got reacquainted in the mid-'90s through a mutual friend, and as it worked out, I was just solely focused on research and investments, and Sasha was looking at the big picture and financial planning, and my clients needed her expertise, and her clients could use my expertise, and we thought two heads were better than one, so... It's worked out quite well, and uh, we're very different, which I think is a big strength, and uh, so we bring an awful lot to the table. Yeah, we became partners in uh, 1998, I think, 97 or 98, and uh, it's worked out pretty well. We haven't killed each other yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's dive in. One of the big questions is, what is driving this current market volatility? Sasha, maybe you could start. I think that it's an adjustment period that is being driven by the fact that the Fed is raising interest rates. But it is an adjustment period from some very unique dynamics that occurred during the pandemic and a strong market before that, certainly. But it was even stronger because of the amount of assistance in various forms that the government gave during the pandemic, which was a good thing. They should have done that. It was very essential. But it has created some dislocations that I think might be partly adding to the volatility that is normal to see when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. You probably would like to expand on that a little bit. Well, and we obviously, I mean, everyone reads the paper, so we're obviously very aware of this horrible war in the Ukraine, the lockdown in China, which is causing our continuation of the supply chain issues that have come out of the pandemic. So as we all know, you can't get parts for this, that, and the other. And so that's obviously been an issue. And then we have multi-decade highs in inflation, which is forcing the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. And as Sasha mentioned, I think there's been a lot of excesses going on in the market the last couple of years, you know, so I, I, I'm not a fan of crypto. We'll see how it plays out. But, um, you, you know, you've had that and these uh, special purpose acquisition companies that have been formed, hundreds of them, and you have stocks, you know, with 100 times revenues. And so you're seeing some valuations, some excesses like we saw in 99. And that had it, that has to be wrung out of the market and it, it invariably does. And so we have a number of news items to, to sort of force this transition. Well, speaking of that, let's dive into that question just a little bit about the headlines. What role is inflation playing? It's hard to untangle exactly what role any one of these things is playing. When I said a minute ago that there were some unusual circumstances during the pandemic, at first, it was very unusual to just shut the whole economy down, which we really had no choice, but we had to do. And then it was very unusual, but very important that the Federal Reserve stepped in and made sure that there was plenty of liquidity in the markets. And the federal government stepped in and made sure that people had the support that they needed. So all these things needed to happen. It's not like it would have been better if the government didn't do what they did do. What they did was very important. 
what ended up happening is that people had a lot more liquidity than they had had before. Americans had more cash in the bank by the end of one year and more at the end of 18 months after the pandemic hit. And so they were kind of stuck at home for a while and they started to take whatever actions they could to make their lives more interesting, which included everything from, well, if I'm isolated, how can I get away? Well, I can buy a trailer or a, um, a motorboat or something. So you saw that kind of purchasing going on. Or I could also gamble. I could do sports betting or I could invest. So the fact that people were doing less of their normal activities and had more money in the bank led to a lot of behaviors that ended up with inflated asset prices, mm -hmm. including the stock market. Then when on top of that, we have, like Greg said, the war in Ukraine, we have supply chains that are still, you know, people thought they would be more healed by now, but they're not. All these things have happened. They're all related to each other, whether it's too much money chasing too few goods or whether it's price increases that have come in from other sources like the war. A series of events and circumstances have resulted in the fact that we have inflation and that we have the circumstances that we do. And the Fed needs to raise interest rates to help to bring that down. And the Fed needs to take assets off their balance sheet, which is bonds, off their balance sheet in order to get back to a more normal policy circumstance for the Fed. It's all connected. I get that it's all connected. And I also get that Wall Street has seen a variety of factors come into play before. I feel like we've been here before, and yet each time it feels unsettling in a new way. Can you explain the mood on Wall Street, the worry, if we have been here before, if these things are temporary? How do you explain the worry on Wall Street? I would say that uh, it's very much click-related. If you watch CNBC, and I, I look at it, when markets are going up, the sky's the limit. And when we're going down, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket. So it's something I think that um, obviously the news is bad right now. It's very difficult. So it's very easy to whip people into a frenzy. And I think psychology is extremely important when it comes to the markets. So uh, I had a, I was reading a statistic from Howard Marks over the weekend, and uh, the S&P was reconfigured in 1957. So you're looking at 65 years of data, and it's returned 10% a year over that 65-year window. And so when you look at how often has the market returned between 8 and 12% in any given year, it's only six years. You know, you'd think we just sort of plot along, you know, 10% a year and only six years you're in that 8 to 12% window. So what happens is 
prices go up, people get excited and they take them above fair value. And then prices come down, people get nervous and they take them below fair value. And that's why we get much wider swings in the market is just investor psychology. Well, the psychology is working, I guess, on you want to call it that, because investor fear certainly does seem to be high, as it always does during times like these. Sasha, do you have any tips for investors like me on how best to manage their fears of what could happen to their portfolios? Well, I think talking to your financial advisor is a really good way to do that. I think Greg is right. And even before CNBC was such a big source of information, the media coverage both enhances things on the upside, sometimes too much, and enhances fear on the downside. I used to play a clip for people of the background music that the television would use when the market was bad, and then they'd be showing a picture, and they'd play this ominous background music. So you might not even recognize that that background music is even happening, but it's creating a, a emotional reaction. So I think it's important to get news, but edit your exposure. You know, don't get too involved with people who are experts being interviewed that have a very, very dark negative perspective. What you'll find over time is there are people that are what we call perma bears. They're always negative about the market, but nobody's listening to them when the market is good. It's only when the market's bad that they're invited on to do their interviews and write their articles. And then the, the headlines, which will always sound very scary. A lot of those people are, are always bearish. I think we need to do a, a whole episode on perma bears. <laughs> I've never heard that expression before, but I think that could really take. And even I have noticed, you know, there are some people who are doom scrolling champions, the the alarmists who are ringing the bells. I'm, I'm recognizing a few names that I've seen before. I'm like, I've seen you before. You have the same point. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, I've found, I think you always sound smarter when you're bearish. Like the person in the meeting who's always sort of like being the contrarian. I just think that if you're an investor, then, and you've been investing for a while, anybody who has, we've been through lots of ups and downs. Several of them in my career have felt and been way scarier than this one. I think this is more of an adjustment than anything else. I think that, for example, the mortgage crisis. That was very, very scary. And, and you know, entire firms were going out of business. That had some really serious economic consequences. I think what we're going through now is more of an adjustment as we get back to a sort of more normal environment, which will take a while. And we pull back from some prices on some assets that were too high. They, they just were not justified by the earnings of the company or by anything else. Greg, for now, what should investors be doing to make their investments set up to withstand this current period of volatility? Is there anything specific? 
Well, I've, I've always felt that uh, it's important to have the correct asset allocation before you go into an event like this. And one of the things that Sasha and I have been doing over the last nine months or so, if you looked at growth stocks, growth mutual funds, they had done extremely well. Value funds had underperformed what the growth funds have done by quite a margin. And when you look at the earnings yield of a growth portfolio, you know, the, the yield was something like 3% and the earnings yield on value funds was, you know, 7%. So uh, the earnings yield is nothing more than the earnings, you know, if you put $10,000 in a CD at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year, the bank gives you your 10 grand back plus $500, you know you made 5% on your money. That is your earnings yield. And you can do that same calculation for corporations. So we felt that at a 3% earnings yield, we weren't being rewarded, that the upside was was limited. And so we were moving assets from the growth side to the value side, which has really worked out well. And so there's periods of time where these things trade in tandem, but we saw this in 98, 99, you had a pretty big gap between value and growth and value ended up doing quite well versus growth over, you know, 2000, 2005 timeframe. Yeah, I think that uh, the other thing that we have had a lot of is dividend paying stocks. And those are doing better than anything else in the market this year. They're even better than bonds so far. The Fed has raised interest rates eight times. This is, this is the ninth since 1980. And every single time the Fed raises interest rates, the market is more volatile. If I could pick one thing that really helps me the most, kind of calm nerves, it's the historical perspective. And I would really appreciate hearing a little bit of that from you both on the historical perspective on market volatility, because like you just said, the Fed raising the rates eight times, and then we see something similar. Could you share a little bit more about the historical perspective and how important that is for understanding what's going on? I would just say briefly that it's remarkable to me, you know, human beings have this ability to forget uh, difficult periods. And one of the things that I like to do is pull up old Wall Street journals and, you know, you read what was going on in 73, 74, you read the headlines and so on. And, uh, you know, it, it's the end of the world as, as we know it. It's something where when we get through a 1987, where the market was down 22% in a day, you know, today we have this tendency to go, oh, I knew it was going to recover. I, I knew we weren't going into a recession. You forget these periods of time, and it's really important to remember them uh, because when they pop up, they're, they're very difficult to deal with and they can get pretty ugly. Yeah, I would say before 1980, the Federal Reserve had a policy which was that they basically did not tell the public what they were going to do from a policy perspective. So everything they did was a surprise. So that created a whole different environment than we have now. Since 1980, the Fed has become more and more transparent. And they're being very, very transparent this year. They're telling you exactly what they're thinking, which is helpful. We have looked at the way the market behaved 
in all the other eight times since 1980. And it really breaks down into two groups, both of which are volatile. When I say volatile, I mean both down and up. The whole time the Fed was raising rates in every circumstance, the market sort of was in a, a state of first falling, then rallying, then falling, then rallying. The exact pattern was different every single time. It does break down into two groups. There are Fed raising situations where the market went up and down by single digits, and there are other markets in which when the Fed raised rates, the market went up and down by double digits. So clearly we're in the double digit category. That could become a little bit less volatile as we progress through and perhaps get closer to when the rate hiking cycle is over. But the key here is this is a particular policy that's being carefully and on purpose implemented by the Federal Reserve. It will end, and when it ends, maybe even before it's ended, we'll be into a new positive market cycle. And I think it's good for people to remember, as, as you were saying, Greg, the historical perspective, it's the end of the world as we know it. If you go back and look at headlines, right? It makes me think of the REM song. Are you familiar with it? <laughs> the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> so it's got a comforting lyric in there, uh, which is, it's the end of the world as we know it, I and, and then it finishes with, <laughs> and I feel fine. So maybe that should be the theme song for the next few months. What do you think? Or maybe we should even think about the possibility that crisis equals opportunity. Oh, so well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, and volatility <laughs> is the friend of, a, of active portfolio managers, and Warren Buffett has said that the Berkshire Hathaway returns are one to two percentage points higher than they would be because they were able to sell businesses at higher prices than they would normally expect. And they were able to buy other businesses at prices lower than they expected. So they took advantage of those opportunities to the high side and the low side. I've often heard that times like these down market times are times of opportunity and wondered what that meant exactly. So for a client like me, how would you define what it means? Low prices is an opportunity. If you're going to be a stock market investor, then, you know, down markets are when stocks go on sale. They are. And down markets are also when people panic a little. I had a friend, unfortunately, a few years ago who just, I guess you would call her low risk tolerance, and she just pulled completely out of the markets and... I think she regrets that a bit. But study after study has shown that when investors don't stay the course, they do damage to their portfolios through poor timing, selling at the or near the bottom and or buying after the market has already appreciated. What's the biggest problem you'd say investors face if they try to time the market? Well, I'll give you a statistic, Dave. This is going back over the last 20 years, and I've seen these numbers going back 50, 60, 70 years. And uh, over the last 20 years, um, the S&P has had 5,060 trading days. And if you missed uh, the top 30 
days, the, the top 30 return days, over 5,060. In a market that returned 9.5% over that time frame, your return dropped to four-tenths of 1%. So that's less than 1% of the trading days, and you've effectively wiped out your return. And if you miss the 60 top days, your return drops to minus 5%. And if you miss the 90 top days, your return drops to minus 8.9%. So that's less than 2% of the trading days. If you miss those, you're looking at losses. And I've, I've seen the studies saying if you miss the, the worst days, you know, this happens, but good luck guessing, you know, what those days are. So, you know, we very much as Peter Lynch said, more money is lost preparing for a downturn than is lost in the actual downturns. And what about the headlines that say terrible news headlines? But I've heard that by the time you see some of those terrible headlines, Wall Street's kind of one step ahead of you and that it's already turning around a bit. Is that true? Not necessarily. I mean, it can be true. There are times when it's true. We have to also remember something about the markets is that the institutions, part of what they do is they set up computers to program if stock X goes to price Y, we're out of there. So on some of these days where you see like tremendous volume and one stock goes way down, the odds that that's Computer trading by institutions is pretty high. So that would be a case in which by the time you are looking at your portfolio with that stock, the stock has already dropped because of the program trading. So I just think that this is really a planning question. When you're doing financial planning, one of the things we look at is how much cash do people need? How much cash do people need to feel safe to cover emergencies that are currently unforeseen and whatever else they may need in terms of expenses over the course of the year? What cash do they need to have just isn't going to be invested? And if you go through that planning exercise and you set aside the cash, then you can have a lot more, I think, flexibility about your investment portfolio. Your investment portfolio is there for the long run. You're going to leave it invested. And most people who are working are very familiar, for example, with 401k plans. Well, why do 401k plans work so well over time? It's because you set up a regular investment. It happens every pay period, whether the market is up or down, money comes out of your paycheck and goes into your 401k. That's dollar cost averaging, right? Exactly. It's dollar cost averaging. And what that does over the course of 12 months is because when the market's down, your amount that you're investing is going to buy more. And when the market is high or expensive, your amount is going to buy less. By the end of 12 months, you will have a lower than average price for that year in your 401k. And while it is, you know, I just say don't look so much, but in a down year, it's hard to watch your 401k lose value. Here's the payoff. If you just keep investing through the hard year, 
a couple years later, you're going to see this explosion in your 401k. The worse the market has been, the more that 401k is going to pop because we're done with that time frame where prices were low, prices are higher, and you get the reward for being a disciplined investor. Well, speaking of the hard year, I know you don't have crystal balls, but if you could imagine maybe some possible scenarios, what do you think we might be expecting through the end of 2022? Well, it's interesting because uh, all the headlines are, you know, we're going into a recession and we use a number of metrics. But one one company that we follow closely, ClearBridge, has a recession risk indicator and they're following 12 different forward-looking metrics. So things like housing permits and jobless claims, wage growth, ISM new orders, truck shipments, yield curve, et cetera, et cetera. And we've studied their results and noticed, like, for instance, in 2000, their indicator went from green to yellow in the summer of 2000 and then very quickly went to red. So they had a, a move green, yellow, red, which was very timely. And then in 2006, their indicator went red in the fall of 07. So it took quite a while to go from, from yellow to red. Today, looking at their 12 indicators, we have eight greens, three yellows, and one red. So when we look at a number of the, the forward-looking data, we are not seeing a recession on the horizon over the next 12 months. That's not to say that one can't occur down the road. It's not to say we can't talk ourselves into one. But we're following this process versus trying to guess what's going to happen going forward. So, yeah, we're sitting tight. And one other thing I'll mention is the American Association of Individual Investors, the AAII, they have 150,000 members and they do a weekly survey and they come to them and say, are you bullish or are you bearish? And you find that the readings tend to be very bullish at market tops and very bearish at market bottoms. And we're seeing readings today that are right in line with where the market was in 2000 and in 2008. So there's an awful lot of people that are, are now very bearish, and we think that's a, a positive going forward. And I don't think it would take much on the news front to, I'm not saying it's going to change, but that if we get certain news items coming out, I think that's a big positive. And the first one I, I've seen is that the 10-year treasury got up to 3.16% a month and a half ago. It's at two and three quarters today. So interest rates are rolling over. We're seeing signs of inflation rolling over. Wage growth is slowing. So if we can get China open up, it would be wonderful to you know find peace in Ukraine. But there's some things that could happen that could turn this market around fairly quickly. Well, I was going to say, what what do you think are some of the things that could turn the market around fairly quickly? Well, end the war in Ukraine, open China, and then have interest rates go down and have the Fed not be as aggressive as they've talked about. We're looking for two half point raises at the next two meetings. 
But if they were to tone down their rhetoric in terms of raising rates, uh, you know, that would be a positive as well. But it's interesting. Sasha mentioned this briefly at the beginning. You know, there, a lot of money got spent on goods during the pandemic and uh, services took a hit. And services, which are normally 70 percent of the economy, dropped to about 65 percent. And it was interesting to see Top Gun was you know, brought in 150 million over the weekend and travel is way up and hotels are getting back to normal. And, you know, everyone's fed up with this. So we have to be careful. We have to be safe as we go forward. Uh, but if we could get back to some semblance of normalcy, that would be a big piece of corporate earnings. And, you know, when we look at corporate earnings over the next couple of years, they, they still look to be like uh, we're going to have positive growth there. I'm not a, uh, I know it's just one small thing, but I was astounded by the Top Gun opening this weekend. I think I read somewhere that it was the biggest Memorial Day movie theater opening in 18 years or something like that. Astounded by that. There's pent up demand for experiences, you know, experiences and that equals services. So, I mean, I, I've traveled in the last week to both New York City and Washington, D.C. I have never seen the hotel where I always stay more crowded, <laughs> ever. And uh, New York was totally crowded in a good way. And every show I went to, which I went to three different shows and every restaurant, it, it was very busy. So people are out there. People are spending money. The consumer, actually, their consumer's balance sheet is still very good. Consumers have less debt than they had at the beginning of the pandemic, and that is across the board at every income level, and companies have less debt as well. So, Dave, it's really hard to, with all of these things that we started the conversation with, there's so many different variables that we're dealing with that's, that's more complex than usual. It's very hard to say exactly when does this market turn, but the market will go down and up and down and up and down and up probably at least a couple times, maybe more times before we're done with this cycle. I just think take a deep breath try to not worry so much about the day-to-day value of your portfolio. Think about what you could be doing now to increase your future wealth and go to, go watch some movies, go to see Top Gun. <laughs> I did. I went to Downton Abbey this weekend, so I did my part. I'll go to see Top Gun. I'm, I'm completely down for that too. So, hey, it's air conditioned and it just turned 90 degrees where I am. So, I think that sounds marvelous, really. I I would say the more you can remove yourself from day-to-day stimulus of up, down, up, down, up, down, we're just not built to deal with that. It doesn't bother Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, but, you know, professionals. But for most of us, that volatility drives us crazy. So if you were to just look every few months, you look, oh, and I've heard this from clients. Oh, it's I, I'm I'm okay. You know, it's not the end of the world. So I was going to ask you about that. Are you hearing from clients right now? And if so, is is this what you're saying to them, or is there anything else that you might be saying to them right now? Mostly, what I do, my clients, the ones I'm talking to, do not seem overly stressed. I mean, I'd say concerned, but not panicky or overly stressed. 
and I just talk to them about a lot of things we've talked about today, revisit their plan, what are we doing and why, how's that going, and you know, let them vent a little, answer some questions, and then talk about what we can do. There's one, one thing that we talked about with 401ks is dollar cost averaging. Well, this is a really good time outside of your 401k to do that same thing. You can dollar cost average into any kind of mutual fund investment during this time. That way, you can put a relatively small amount of money to work, let's say, every other week. But again, when the market's down, you're buying more. So then you can be glad about that. You have to put some things into place where you've got a system, and it's going to be a little different for each person, but you have a system that you feel like you're taking some advantage of this time. You're not just sitting there, you know, being kind of worried and beat up every single day. And when she says buy more, she's meaning you buy more shares of that fund when it's down. Yeah. Well, final question for me. This probably will touch on things you've already talked about, but think of it as a lightning round. So just your quick answer on it. What's your single best piece of advice for investors right now? Greg? Stay the course. (laughs) Add if you can. But as Sasha mentioned earlier, you know, for people that are taking money out of their accounts, what have you, if the cash is set aside, it's in money markets, a short-term bond fund, what have you, you know, you can withstand a lot. You just don't want to be a forced seller of stocks when they're down in price. That's critical. What's your single best piece of advice for investors right now, Sasha? Talk to a financial advisor because just the things that come up in that conversation are really going to be helpful and reframing a little bit, perhaps. And one other thing I think is if your financial advisor knows this, what companies are buying back their own stock right now? Because that's a pretty good hint that the company (laughs) thinks their stock price is going up. (laughs) And uh, that is a tried and true method of investing that can work very well. Insider buying and stock repurchases. Well, thank you both. I've done this now. I took your advice, Sasha. I've now talked to two financial advisors today. So (laughs) check and check. Did it help, Dave? It did help. I feel better. Is there anything we haven't covered in today's podcast that you think investors should know about how best to navigate market volatility? Uh, Well, I I wanted to add one thing, and that was just this year has been a very odd year in that obviously stocks are down, but bonds are down too. The bond aggregates down was down roughly 10% at one point in time. And normally when stocks are down, bonds are up. And that's been, I think, a little unsettling for people to see both of those asset classes climb in price. So it's it's really, I think, helpful to be aware of what's happened there. We are much more comfortable with the bond market today. You're getting much better yields. And so if interest rates are are rolling over, there's some really good opportunities there as well. So it's something to be aware of. So in terms of investments and bonds, the same advice applies. Just stay the course. Yes. Stick with quality. Stay the course, <laughs> but make a plan for this time that's relevant to this time. Good way to end it. I like that. Thank you both so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Great questions. Thank you both. 
Thanks for listening to Money Conscious. Visit us at millstoneevansgroup.com. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sasha Millstone. Sasha Millstone is the president and an investment advisor with the Millstone Evans Group, a registered investment advisor located in Colorado. All opinions expressed by Sasha and her podcast guests on this show are their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Millstone Evans Group. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.